Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Reese Show, where we interview experts to help you understand where technology is headed and how it will impact society as a whole and also your daily life. Thanks so much for learning with us and enjoy the episode. Hello. Today, I chat with Kianjun Q. Kianjun is really sharp and leads an AI company. And as part of what information wants, I'm doing this series now to understand is there a third replicator? There's genes, and then there's memes. Are there these like computer memes, these schemes? And so her and I chat about that and learn about their really fascinating take on AI with her company, Generally Intelligent, where they try to get the AI to understand very specific forms of how humans learn. So it tries to teach the AI, or the AI tries to learn itself, things like object permanence and things that us as little kids know. And then using that as a building block, then to learn other kinds of more general and generally intelligent behaviors. It's a fascinating conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. Thanks. Hello, listeners. Welcome to The Reese Show. I am Reese, the co-founder of Root, and this is my world. <laughs> We're in real life today, which is great. Uh, and I believe that this century is a turning point in human history, and I'm here to help you navigate it. I hope you come away with a new understanding of the scientific, technological, and societal trends that are poised to radically reshape our world and how you can work with those trends to become a live player in building a solar punk future. So to chat about all those amazing things, today I'm excited to chat with uh, Kanjun Q. And Kanjun is this amazing community builder in SF, we're currently in SF, and uh, she's the CEO of Generally Intelligent, which is an org that's creating artificial general intelligence, aka AGI, uh, by building machines that learn the way humans do. Kanjun, thanks for being on the show and welcome. Thank you. Excited to dive in. And as a side note, maybe we'll get to this at the end, but yeah, like, Kanjun, I met Kanjun when I went to her first house, um, the archive in San Francisco. And I was thinking about when I was, I first moved to San Francisco and I'm not sure if you remember this Kanjun and you were very welcoming and you were showing me all the house, <laughs> but the room that you all had available was like the Harry Potter room under the oh, stairs. The Harry Potter closet. <laughs> and I looked at it and we were looking at it and it was like, it was still like 600 bucks or whatever. And I remember like fitting my, I'm six feet tall or whatever. So I, my body could fit, but I remember, and I had people take pictures of me and my, I was like, I just don't think this is good for me or my dating life. <laughs> so thank yes, you for the I offer. Agree that. Yeah, I would agree. <laughs> I think actually we stopped renting out the Harry Potter closet mm. uh, because one, it seemed a little bit dangerous. You know, there's not very much ventilation in the yeah. closet under the stairs. Um, but also uh, we ended up getting all three floors of a house and it, Ended up being 25 people, so that was a lot. Right. Yeah, yeah, you didn't need to shove more people in all we the corners. We don't need to shove more people in the yeah, corners. So that's totally, that's <laughs> um, yeah, so I think the, we're, we'll chat maybe about like some of your other, because Kanjun has all these diverse interests, which is great, but I think we're going to spend most of the day talking about AI. Yes, which and, is my primary focus and interest. Yes, so. great. Um, and so I think that the, uh, for me, I'm kind of a noob with AI. I, I know computer science kind of, but I haven't, I didn't take any classes on it, surprisingly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm trying to understand, you know, like the background here that we chatted about beforehand is that I'm writing this book on what information wants and how uh, genes create the tree of life and how memes create the tree of ideas. And now we have this new, possibly scary thing, um, artificial intelligence, and maybe it's a third replicator and blah, blah, blah. So that's kind of the space that we'll be exploring. Hmm. But before we go and do all that, can we start with your company and what it is to build, um, 
why you're building machines and starting with like the human side of things or tell us more what that yeah, means. Yeah, what do we do? Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so uh, Generally Intelligent is an AI research company. And we, you know, the way to think about it is we're trying to build human-like general intelligence. And what I mean by human-like is we want a system that can learn the kinds of things that humans can learn using a similar amount and type of data to what humans use. Um, and so, you know, evolution used a lot of data, uh, training data to produce the human brain core yeah. architecture. Um, and so there's that training stage, which is something that we, you know, right now we train these large models and we use a lot of data to train things, but, uh, humans also have a learning stage. This learning stage is really important. Mm. It's, um, humans are remarkably general in what we're able to learn, the types of environments we're able to adapt to, the types of problems we're able to solve. And machines after this training stage are not, they're not general. And, um, you know, they're becoming more general. These are, there are these language models that are a little bit more able to kind of handle different situations, but, uh, primarily they're not general in the same way, in the sense that they don't really learn new things in the way that humans learn new things to retrain these systems today takes a lot of data. Um, there's no idea of learning, you know, you can show a person, you can tell a person once, like don't insult people yeah. and they'll be like, okay, done. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to yes, insult ma'am. people. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or like, don't, you know, always cut out the recycling uh, before you put <laughs> yeah. it in the bin. <laughs> or else you're causing climate change. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, which is a notice that we got this morning. Nice. Um, and we're like, okay, we will do that. Yes. Um, but you would have to tell this machine learning model, uh, you know, many, many, many times, yeah. uh, tens of thousands of times. So, Building human-like general intelligence, um, why is that important? Like, when it, you could, you might be able to say, oh, well, it doesn't matter. Why don't you just use tons of data to, to allow these models to learn on an ongoing basis? And there are really two reasons why you'd want to, uh, you know, be able to learn on an ongoing basis. One is uh, there are a lot of things that humans do that don't, like, where there's just not enough data to yeah. teach us. So there's this kind of, like, long tail of everything. Um mm. These systems today, we're not really good at dealing with the long tail of everything. Um, the second reason is uh, actually a little bit more about safety and kind of deployment. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I think a lot about what is the impact of AI, uh, of general intelligence on humanity. And there are all of these kind of like stories of uh, paperclip maximizer and things like that. And I think those are, um, you know, good things to think about. Like we should think about how to align AI with what humans want. But, um, you know, I ran an AI recruiting company before this. Um, mm. And one thing that I learned is customers do not buy an AI that does not do the thing they want. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so capitalism really pushes us to solve the alignment problem yeah. um, because it's really annoying if your thing keeps doing something that's not yeah. what you asked it to do. Um, now, there's things like deception and, and things like that. So, of course, you know, alignment is a real problem. But I think there's also, uh, secondly, kind of a, an important deployment problem. You know, if you think about what does AI give us, like what's the impact of that on the world? What it gives us is humans who have substantially more capability than they did before, individuals who have substantially more capability. Um, And so now you want to start thinking about, okay, what's the impact of that on the world? Um, One potential impact is, for example, totalitarian governments are much easier to sustain. Yeah. If you have substantially more capability and you deprive other people of uh, general intelligence, then um, you just have like much more power. And the power imbalance, to me, I think that's quite 
um, brittle, mm. like it's uh, not robust to have uh, ecosystem where certain individuals have substantially more power. Yeah. <clears throat> and so what I'm interested in is, you know, this human-like intelligence, something that is able to learn and be easy to train. Um, my hope is that this will allow AI to be much more democratized. Mm. Um, and, you know, the current large systems, that's not necessarily going to be true. Yeah. Uh, so, okay, what do we do? <laughs> Wait, and let me pause you for a second before you go into it, which is that, so A, this is helpful to think, A, I like the the frame of, um, yeah, the, that it was a lot of training data in order to get humans. I mean, yeah. we had four billion years, we had all the life, and then we blah, blah, and then we got, and then we got plants and animals, and then we got the chimps, and then we, or we got brains, and then we got human brains, and now, and then we're, and then as you say, there's both the, we were trained, but then there's the learning side too, where it's like, um, we were trained and then we pop out and we know very little and anybody could come and um, do bad things to us. And then over time we get much better and we get better at learning things That's right. and you and I can learn today. Mm-hmm. And then I guess the other piece here that I really, I, I hear what you're saying about the long tail bit, um, which is, yeah, you don't necessarily want yeah, not all of reality has tons and tons of data. And so you might want to show only one cat to the AI and for it to be like, that's a cat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, one, one specific example of this yeah. is, uh, or like some examples of this are like, uh, you might want a salesperson to learn how to do sales at your company. Mm-hmm. And that particular sales process is like really specific to your company. Mm-hmm. You don't have 85,000 examples of sales manuals. <laughs> um, you have one. Yeah. So you would like a human to be able to come in and learn how to do sales at your company Mm -hmm. or learn how to do things specifically the way that you want them to do things. And, um, it's just kind of in the way that we, in the paradigm that we currently think about, uh, intelligence or training these systems, these large models, um, or small models, it's train and test. Mm -hmm. And so you train a model, then you test it. And now during test, it's basically doing the task. Um, but Mm. humans are trained uh, as an evolve yeah. and then learn uh-huh. and then do a task. Okay. Right? So there are kind of these three stages. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. And so, yeah, so that gets to maybe, and, well, and, and before we get into that for a second, it's like, <laughs> I think the democratized thing, I think is, I like that a lot more. Hey, who doesn't like to democratize stuff? Mm-hmm. Um, I think it is dangerous. For it's dangerous. Oh, I think, but... and I think that's a, there's a question, you know, at, at the end of Bostrom, super intelligence, wherever he talks about different kinds of uh, situations that could occur and multipolarism is one of them. And mm-hmm. I think, but I think that some kind of like multipolar, my just my intuition, knowing very little about it, is maybe similar to yours, which is that having some kind of quick feedback loop between our our values and the machine values and whatever, and having those things be in this complex multipolar ecosystem mm-hmm. with a lot of actors kind of um, and agents balancing each other feels like a slightly safer scenario than like, okay, we're just going to make one really big model and hope it works. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Potentially. Yeah. 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 I think, yeah. 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 Um, I think... Um, I guess no one really knows the answer, my current thinking on it, uh, and this might change over time. So disclaimer, (laughs) but my current thinking on it is, um, you, so it's much easier to destroy than to create. Mm -hmm. Um, you also, uh, coordination is really important. Yeah. And so, okay. In the first situation, it's much easier to destroy than, than to create what you, what we have today is people who have destruct, who want to destroy, it is hard for them to recruit other people to their mm-hmm. cause because most people don't want to do the same thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is a nice natural balancing factor. Um, and other people are trying to prevent them from destroying things. Yeah. Um, and so there's enough kind of force preventing destruction. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also hard for the destruction to get power. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
in a situation with AI, like you could replicate this AGI many times and then use that to destroy. It's like easier to accumulate resources toward destruction. Yeah. Um, and so maybe one way to kind of help balance that out is to have many more people who have, uh, you know, kind of naturally who don't want to be as destructive and who uh, are able to like use many more resources toward preventing the destruction. <clears throat> Another potential solution, like there are a lot of, you know, potential things that might make a little bit of uh, progress here is like help everyone uh, be less traumatized and recover from their trauma so that they yeah. have less tendency to want to destroy things. Yeah. We were that's just like talking another... about childhood and going to therapy and stuff <laughs> right, beforehand. Right, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so that's like another, that's like another thing that can be done in parallel. Um, but I like the idea of that. There is, you can either add, um, it's easier to uh, destroy than create. And so you need to add friction around the destruction, either the friction to coordinate, uh, you need to add more friction to coordinate, or That's you need right. to make it, yeah, or you need to make it, even if you ha have the ability to coordinate, you need to have other people be able to stop it. That's um, right. Some kind of friction. Yes, yeah, yes, I like yes, that yes. way of thinking about it. And so, so coming back to what your, what generally intelligent does. So what, how's, how does it, yeah, tell us Yeah, about so that. what's our approach? Yeah. Um, so we basically evolve a system to solve cognitive milestones yeah. of um, infants sequentially from birth through adulthood. Cool. So kind of sequentially increasing in, in complexity. Um, that is the oversimplified way of describing what mm -hmm. we do. Uh, uh, slightly more complex. <laughs> A slightly more complex way of describing it is um, we basically, the way that we think about the problem, uh, intelligence evolves evolved to solve a particular set of problems, which is the problems that we had to solve evolutionarily to survive. And the way that the the intelligence manifests is we develop these like cognitive capabilities in order to be able to solve those problems. We need to be able to figure out, you know, if there's food in one location and water in a different location, how can we access both the food and the water without dying of hunger or thirst? If there are predators, how do we avoid the predators but still be able to get the thing that we want? Um, it's a complex kind of like natural ecosystem. And so we develop all these cognitive milestones. Um, and a way to think about our approach is it's a little bit like test-driven development, mm -hmm. where we start with a simpler set of uh, milestones, cognitive milestones, so kind of like earlier evolutionary. Um, and then we add a slightly more, we develop a system to solve that. Mm -hmm. We add a slightly more complex milestone, update the system to solve that. If it's uh, not solving it, we can be like, okay, well, why is it solving these, but not this next one? Mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of the high level and that makes sense. It's really great. It allows us to make progress um, on solving milestones because it's hard to get stuck when you're like, okay, I have a working subsystem, and mm. uh, and and I just want to figure out how to get the next thing. Yeah. And so it's a little bit like evolution in that sense, where like evolution always had a working subsystem. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, that's interesting. I guess it's like, and so you want to have a yeah evolution just didn't get to where we are now it's like okay or like we didn't get to where we are now being like 30 year olds or whatever there is we were zero years old and one year old before we were here <laughs> and so right. you can say like hey ai can you like do object permanence yes yeah, or like what's right. an example of a thing that you have it do object permanence is a really good classic okay. one because okay. machine learning systems today uh have a lot of trouble with object huh? permanence <laughs> or at least in the last few years okay um there's also a lot of things uh, there are a lot of other things uh, like learning from other agents and uh, uh, like object solidity, the idea that mm -hmm. objects are solid, the idea that objects are continuous, yep. all this like object interaction, um, how to make trade-offs between different uh, like different needs. Um, there are like a whole bunch of other things that 
humans are able to do and animals are able to do that machines aren't necessarily that good at. Yeah. Um, how far and, to the and how far into it are you? Like, are you are you at age four? You know, or like, <laughs> if are you we were at age, age one? four, we'd have general intelligence. Okay, okay, sweet, sweet, sweet. Okay, <laughs> so, okay, yes, okay, okay. Yeah. So you're like uh, two months or something. <laughs> yeah. So actually, um, in the first few months of life, <laughs> the way that developmental psychologists evaluate a baby is they look at um, what are the like how long does it is called looking time paradigm mm-hmm. of evaluating what babies understand. They look at how long do babies look at a thing? Hmm. Uh, so, for example, maybe around three months old, you learn that objects are solid. And so you can show a baby uh, who's three months old a video of two objects that just bounce off each other versus a video of two objects that pass through each other. Mm-hmm. And the baby will be, uh, if they're three, four, five, six months old, they'll like stare at the one with the objects that pass through each other for yeah. a long time because they're like, what? Yeah. yeah. That violated my expectations. Yeah. Mm. Um, whereas like a two month old, they might look at them both for the same amount of time because mm-hmm. they're like, oh, I don't know. Mm. They're not predicting that objects should not pass through, pass through each other. So this is kind of the like violation of expectation yeah. uh, paradigm of evaluating whether babies understand things. And this happens in the first seven, eight months of life, mm. um, because babies aren't able to really do other things. Mm. Um, so it's hard to test what they mm. understand. It's only how long, where they're at and how long they're looking at the thing. Okay. Exactly. Huh. Exactly. So our initial, um, setup was our first set of milestones was, can we learn all of the object understanding, object representations, uh, object permanence, um, the like understanding that babies learn in the first maybe six to nine months of life um, using this violation of expectations paradigm. Mm-hmm. Um, so we set up uh, a, and, and, and learn that in a fully self-supervised way. Okay, so it. you don't have to give the baby any labels. Um, babies mostly just look around and, mm-hmm. and then try to kind of understand things for themselves. Okay. Um, they do look at what caretakers are doing and copy them, but we can talk about that later. It's mm-hmm. more complex. Um, so we, ended up developing a system that like very simple, very small network, uh, that in a fully self-supervised way could learn things like, uh, Oh, when the object goes behind the occluder, Mm -hmm. the object is still behind, like the object is still there, even though you can't see it. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that was kind of the first set of tasks that we set up and solved, Cool, which is cool. So now we are moving on to the next set of tasks. Uh, which now starts involving the baby interacting with the environment. Mm-hmm. Um, so we looked at all of the interactions that babies have with the environment. It turns out that babies actually are not very good at doing things in the environment. <laughs> so we are also looking at all the things that chimpanzees can do in an environment. Mm-hmm. Um, so that like, you know, grasp things, eat things, navigate, move, yeah. climb. Yeah. Um, there's really just a few kind of uh, building block things yeah. that chimpanzees are able to do that kind of allow them to do a lot of other things. And so we're actually submitting a paper to NeurIPS um, that is uh, basically an, a simulated environment, procedurally generated simulated environment that allows us to be able to set up a, a ton of skills mm-hmm. and test those skills. Mm-hmm. Um, so what we want is for the same model uh, to or agent uh, to be able to do all of these different skills and, and learn to do them in this environment. Yeah. 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 Um, and are you able to, and you call that benchmark or something? Is that what you call it? Benchmark, benchmark. Yeah. Are you able to show, can we, can we look at the, the can we show the viewers <laughs> the little image of it? We, it's, it, it's not, it's not final. It's not final, but it's kind of a cool, and yes, you, you can yeah, like, you know, you've got like, you know, a little, at the moment it's a monkey, but that's not what the agent's going to end up looking like. 
I love it. I think that this is such, and the reason why this, I mean, this was really helpful and thank you for showing it to the viewers. That's a steep peak of NeurIPS 2022 or 2023. Well, I, know, I know, I know. <laughs> yeah. you know. Um, it, um, well, so any, just to pop a lot of stuff back off the sack. First, the, um, yeah, that learning about the, um, the only, it's kind of like the only training data you can get from babies is just like what they're looking at. And so you, you don't have any other kind of things that let yeah. you know. Yeah. It, it's kind of like, how do you set up an evaluation for what a thing knows? Exactly. Exactly. And you're trying to like understand. And I just had, um, uh, just think about like the Bayesian brain. And I had this guy Carl Friston on my podcast recently mm -hmm. and predictive processing and all that stuff. And so it just makes me think of for you kind of what, like, it sounds like to me, and I didn't know when this happens, but our brains get built with all these priors, uh, you know, um, and then, and the question is when we're at birth, we start to build them up. And so we start to make these predictions about the world. And then when you're three months or six months, or whatever you said, you, when these things, when we have a prior that says objects should hit each other, you know, but then actually they go through each other. Then our brain is like, no, 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 that's bad. Uh, and so, um, uh, do, yeah. do you see what I'm saying? I, I do, but I'm not sure that that, yeah, I'm not sure how it works exactly. Mm. Um, I think what you're saying is the potentially we have some, we're born with some prior about oh, objects. No, not, no, 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 no. We develop, we're born with some uh, prior about uh, doing predictions. Uh, then, we have these meta priors, mm -hmm. which like, yeah, we, our brains do not have essentially any priors when mm -hmm. we're born, mm -hmm. but then we slowly, and I don't know this that well, but then we slowly start to build out these priors as mm -hmm. we're encountering the world. Mm -hmm. And one of those priors ends up being that these, that objects should hit each other. That's right. Yeah, that yeah. objects are solid. The objects are Many solid. Objects exactly. Are solid. Exactly. Yes. And the way, mm -hmm. you know, at least in machine learning, in self-supervised learning, the way that it works is you basically try to predict the future. Yes. And then if the future is different than your prediction, you update uh, the way that you predict. Exactly. And then eventually you'll learn these kind of underlying principles like, oh, if I have this, then, or, you know, it's obviously not, not so, uh, uh, not Simple, so really. solid. Okay, yeah. Solid. Reductive. Yeah, that's yeah, what exactly. I'm, reductionist. That's what I'm, uh, saying, but you know, oh, uh, you know, you might learn things about objects. You might learn things about materials. You might yep. learn things about colors. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And so, so that, that helped me make the prediction. Yeah. And it's, and it's interesting because it's just like, yeah. So and it's like, that is a, our brain, our brains being these like Bayesian machines, you know, and then the um, AI is also this Bayesian machine that just has in the end, like, correct me if I'm wrong, but like the output state after those, after you were like, oh, it's done the correct thing where it can do what the baby did up to nine months. What you have is a, what do you have then? Do you have like a, um, kind of an AI that when you give it certain tasks, it does them in the, the way that you expect? Do you have a, can you actually look at its kind of like Bayesian priors or like it's like model? Yeah. Or... So the way I would think about it is what you want or what you get when you feed a system like this, that's yeah. trying to predict the future, yeah. a whole bunch of data, uh, like video, Yeah. you feed it video. And uh, it develops what we call representations. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like um, uh, just a bunch of numbers in the yeah, yeah. matrix, yeah, yeah. vectors. Yeah. And um, these representations uh, kind of, um, the way the model works is you give it frames of video and then uh, it kind of compresses each frame into a smaller set mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. numbers, representation. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then do you do that with a convolute? Let's see if this thing, oh, uh -oh. Uh -oh. okay. We're still rolling. Still works. Yeah. 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 Um, 
Do you do it with convolution or neural net? Yeah, do you do it with convolution or uh, We don't. We use a variational autoencoder. Oh, right. And I learned about that as well. And they seemed kind of similar to me, but we don't need to go into that. And we don't need <laughs> to go into, into the, the, we don't need to go into the differences. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. You, take, you take the a big in-dimensional thing, or not in-dimensional, but X by X thing, and you collapse into a one by N kind of thing, and you shove that thing into the... Um, into like a multi or into maybe are you using transformers or what are you using? Oh, uh, I can explain the <laughs> architecture. Yeah. So a type of architecture you might use mm-hmm. is you want to take the real world, uh, or in this case, uh, like full pixel frames of video mm-hmm. and then turn it into this like more abstract representation okay. com- compression. Yeah. Um, and then you want to take the compressed abstract thing yeah. and predict future compressed abstract things of future frames of video. Yeah. Okay. That's kind of yep. the setup. Yep. And that so to do the compression, uh, the variational autoencoder actually, what it does is it kind of uh, forces the video into through this compression uh, and then uh, forces it back out to try to make it reproduce mm-hmm. itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it kind of, you know, trains a compression that's able to make uh, frames of yeah. reproduce itself. Yeah. Um, and then you, and then to predict future, what we call latents, this representation, yeah. you can use, um, really any sequence to sequence model. Okay. Um, you can use RNNs, you can use transformers. Mm-hmm. Um, we, the, the, you know, a version we ended up with is using a transformer, but a really small one. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're, yeah, works well. Okay, so if I understand that correctly, yeah, yeah, exactly. So, and thank you for the good explanation. And I'm, Mm -hmm. it's like, um, you you have your like video, aka for now, let's just pretend it's an image. You take the image, you crunch it into one by n space, which you would call a vector if you wanted to, and then you could maybe, um, and then you, um, uh, put that thing that's it's 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 latent aka the thing you don't really care about that's the in-between black box space mm-hmm. and then you uh you so you've done the encoding and then you do the decoding that's right and then it makes this other image and at the beginning it was a cat and at the end you got a dog so you're like no 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 bad ai badly 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 exactly and so then what you do is uh, it works on those until the the uh, thing at the beginning matches the thing at the end that's um right. and so and then you said this final bit which was um, the, uh, any kind of parameter to, par- or you know, sequence to sequence thing. <laughs> Tell me about that and how you like, uh, um, yeah. Yeah. So basically, uh, you know, in predictive processing, yeah. or in a lot of our theories about the brain, um, you know, one theory is we make predictions about the future. Then when the future actually happens, we kind of like update some stuff. Yeah. And then that allows us to make more accurate predictions in the future. Mm-hmm. And, in this machine learning system, you could have something kind of like that, where you are passing in these frames of video. Mm-hmm. And based on the past frames that you've, you've seen, you can you now have this latent. Mm. Um, and you can pass this latent basically um, uh, uh, as an input to your next, uh, your next step, your next yeah. frame. Uh, and so using the past latents that you've seen, you, you kind of want to create a new latent. And then you, uh, in order to train the model, you want to minimize the difference between the, the, new, predict, the new latent you're predicting mm-hmm. and the new true latent. Yeah. So, okay. so basically in the next time step or in some future time step, you would compare your predicted latent against the, uh, the encode. You know, you pass that frame into, through the encoder to produce a, a true latent. Yes, the second latent. Exactly. The second latent. Mm-hmm. So that's the like true latent of that frame mm-hmm. of video um, versus your predicted latent. Then you try to minimize the distance yeah. between the two. Okay, great, 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 great. Yeah, that makes some sense. And I guess that in, in the end, what you get is a thing that's both 
good at it creating latents that are um, that are good at representing itself or whatever, where you have the thing and then the latent's good at being like, hey, you can decode stuff and or you can encode stuff and you can decode stuff. And then that same latent should also be good at um, uh, predicting the future, aka you have uh, a given. Those feel almost like two different tasks. They though. are. Okay, so. so the latent doesn't do all of the work. Uh-huh. The latent is just a representation of the world. Yeah. So it's like, um, what's an analogy in a person? It's like how you understand what is in, like kind of like your... You're kind of like building blocks. Yeah, it's almost like your categories, your, your concepts or something your you're concepts. taking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Your yeah. beliefs. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and so there is information in the encoder, like yeah. in the encoder, and there's also information in the predictor, mm-hmm. in the weights of the predictor. Got it. Yeah. yeah, I think, yeah, I think that that makes sense. And thank you for going down the rabbit hole for, yeah, for a second totally. because it helps understand. Um, I guess the final piece is you have to, I guess when you're doing the sequence to sequence thing, then what you're doing is you're giving it you're training it and you're saying, Hey, here's a bunch of video. Um, and you have these latents, um, and what you, you say, Hey, when you receive latent one, the next latent was this latent two. And so you train it and so that it gets good at, um, uh, yeah, at at doing, making these predictions. It gets good at predicting its own future. Yeah. Yeah. And then once it can predict it, so those predictions are held if the latent is the categories or like the concepts or this one dimensional vector, the, um, the, the predictions are, are like held in the transformer or something, which is, you see, um, <laughs> it's probably a dumb question. But <laughs> no, no, it's not a dumb question. I think what you're asking is like, how does it predict the future? Like what yeah. is the algorithm it uses to figure out what will happen in the future? Yeah, I know. Kind yes. of maybe like I know that there's the latent one and then the latent two and you give it a bunch of data, the data that shows, hey, here's all these latents after each other. So you, it can kind of learn how the latents kind of connect. Yeah. So kind of um, maybe a way to think about it is it's like given a combination of the current state of the world yeah. uh, and like, uh, and the weights of this transformer or, mm-hmm. or RNN, yeah. that combination allows us to determine what a future state of mm-hmm. the world might be. Mm-hmm. 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 It's, it's kind of like, you know, a way to think about the transformer, what it's doing here. It's kind, it's kind of like a state transition. Yeah. Like how do you transition from this state to a different state? Yeah. That's like cool. The weights. That's actually, and that's a good way to explain transformers. And I think that it is, yeah, it's like you have... Okay, and, and let me maybe ask one other question here, which is, is, does the transformer, is the thing that the transformer is taking as input, um, is it a, because when I imagine transformers generally, you have a, it's like you're giving it a se- sequence of text, mm-hmm. you know, and then you're like, okay, what is, you said she earlier, and so then when you say it was him and her, you're going to say her because it like looks backwards or whatever, mm-hmm. Um so you're giving it the text and it's good at NLP and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. In this reality, it seems like what the transformer is taking as input is the latent. Yes. Okay. So instead okay. of text, you're getting a sequence of latents. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Which in my mind is like roughly equal to these like categories or concepts where you're almost, and this is me just being pilled by Friston recently, mm-hmm. where you're taking as input a, um, what a, a continuous, it's technically not continuous because it's a bunch of these pixels, but you're taking a continuous sensory state, mm-hmm. um, and then you're t- collapsing that continuous sensory state until in, into these um, categories or concepts, mm-hmm. the latent, whether you want. And then you are um, 
and then you're pushing that latent through the transformer and then the transformer is like, okay, great. These categories, when you have a category here, a.k.a. solid thing, and you have another category here, solid thing, mm-hmm. if they're getting closer and closer and closer, they're probably not going to go through each other. And like the latent would hold that. Yeah. Or the, or the transformer so would hold that. Um, I actually, I don't, I think. Rip, I didn't get it. No, 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 no. <laughs> yeah. Your explanation is totally valid. Um, and um, it is the case that in human thinking, it seems like there are continuous kind of uh kind of like continuous sensory input and there are these like discrete linguistic conceptual symbolic categories um so i'll call those symbols they're discrete yeah and the uh the world is continuous yeah and so like in a human you know when i feel a vibe of something (laughs) that's like my continue like me processing the continuous state Uh but it's like illegible because i can't Mm. turn that vibe into words yet Mm. so that's like not yet discrete I think here, um, the latents are still continuous. Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. they're not, they don't, they're not symbolic in the way that humans interact with symbols. Mm -hmm. And so I don't want to be, um, uh, misleading on that. (laughs) So that's what the, the Carl Friston model is a somewhat higher level model of like, okay, well you have some continuous state and, uh, you know, humans have some process returning continuous things into discrete symbolic things. And, That process is really useful because when you have discrete things, you can do error correction. You can like build them on top of each other. Yeah. And so like that is important. Yeah. Um, but here in this model, we are still actually still just dealing with continuous mm-hmm. state. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's a difficult or maybe not difficult, but at least not currently solved problem yep. to figure out, okay, how in neural networks do we combine this continuous state and the, and like discrete symbols mm-hmm. um, and how do we map symbols to, um, to, to like, yeah, yes. that makes sense. I think, and I, and I agree. And that's why the, like, you know, we made this trick earlier or the thing to make it easier for us to understand, which is slash listeners, which is the latent, which is this one dimensional vector. Oh, just pretend it's uh, some concepts and some, ca- and, right, and actually, right. well, it's, yeah, not it's actually the, not, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a big old series of it's numbers. Like a it's yeah. a big old blob and it's, um, and it's, and I but there's information in the blob. There's information in the blob. And I don't know. I mean, I guess these get to questions around like, yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, yeah. So there's information in the blob and what the, yeah. So okay, that makes sense. Let's, let's zoom out for one second. And then, and I want to say one of note about your the benchmark model, which I think is actually really uh, smart, which is to, um, so what you're doing is you're using, you're setting up a simple environment for, or simpler environment, and then letting the AI learn in that simpler environment. Right. Um, yes. I would say, maybe yeah. I would say it this way, yes. which is we are, we really believe in, um, you know, the, the field is producing tons of solutions. Yeah. So architecture is of various sorts, solving various problems. And like, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I really appreciate that. Um, we think that it's quite important to think about the problems to solve, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, because, you know, intelligence evolved to solve a specific set of problems. Yeah. What were those problems? Maybe we should try to solve those problems. Yeah. Um, and so we think a lot about kind of what tasks are we trying to actually solve? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, obviously, you know, to us, ImageNet is not the right task. Classification is not the right task. Mm-hmm. It's too simplistic. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, so, you know, for us, we built this environment in order to be able to express a very wide variety of tasks that are sim- quite similar to the tasks necessary for human intelligence. Mm-hmm. Um, and let's see, how would I, uh, and, and your question was, I guess, yeah. I, so I agree with what you're saying, which is there's a um, version of 
uh, it, I said, oh, you made a simple environment. And you're like, whoa, homie, it's not yeah, simple. It I is a specific set of problems that we're actually interested in solving. That's right. And yes. actually, the, env- the environment design problem is actually really important. Yeah. Because it is actually really, there are lots of simple environments. Mm-hmm. And those environments don't lead to intelligence. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, there are a variety of reasons why. Maybe, you, you know, like, uh, I think it's still an open question as to, Basically, what are the what is the minimal viable environment mm-hmm. necessary for intelligence? Mm-hmm. And I think some people think like, oh, this environment needs realistic physics, like perfectly realistic <laughs> physics. And I'm like, I don't think you need perfectly realistic physics to develop intelligence. Yeah. Like, it, you know, it seems like that's probably not fully necessary. Yeah. And, so, you know, other people may say, um, oh, you need uh, completely full photorealism. Um, and you know, I'm currently of the mind and I could be wrong about all of these things. I might change my mind mm-hmm. in six months, um, based on what we discover, but I, I currently don't think you necessarily need full. You could have like, if you realism. took off your glasses, it's like, you still kind of get what's happening yeah, in the world. Exactly. You, know? <laughs> you can be, you can be blind and yes. understand what's going yes. on. Yes, you know? yes, 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 yes. Um, and so the question here really about the environment is what is the minimum viable environment yeah. uh, that allows us to get intelligence? Um, and my current suspicion is that it has something to do with hmm. having, being forced to make trade-offs. Um, and, mm-hmm. uh, and, also these kind of like many, many different levels of complexity yeah. uh, that the world works at. You know, you can break things apart indefinitely yeah. and construct them indefinitely in different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and maybe that allows for something important. Um, you know, there's a lot of work in object segmentation in machine learning. And one, um, one problem with object segmentation is when we think about objects as humans, one, an object may be an object, but inside the object are more objects. So, for example, like I'm <laughs> <Classic>. looking, at, <laughs> right. I'm looking, I'm looking at your computer, mm-hmm. yep. uh, and this computer has a keyboard on it, mm-hmm. and each key is also an object. So, who's to say that the computer is the object and mm-hmm. not the keys? Mm-hmm. And it really, we have this kind of like fractal zoom. Yeah. And so it really depends on what level we're paying attention to. Yeah. You know, a molecule might be an object if we care about that level. Yeah. Um, so maybe that's important. I'm not sure. Yeah. And so, you know, we're not really sure exactly what the minimal viable environment is. If any, if any listeners, if this is your Let's line know. of work, yeah. I would love to hear from yeah. you <laughs> <laughs> because that is a lot of the work. Yeah. Um, and then, and then we design things to solve the environment. Yeah. And I think, and the reason why I just want to emphasize it, because I think it's such a crucial, uh, the, you know, thinking from this replicator perspective, it's like genes are an answer to the environment. The environment produces a puzzle and says, hey, can anything live near a deep sea vent? And then genes are like, no, I'm trying to, oh, me, I can live here. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you're like, oh, but here's another puzzle. Can you live in the air? Mm-hmm. You know, now that you're animals. And, and then birds eventually flap up and go, I can live in the air. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, and similarly, all of our memes are similar kind of answers to the environment. It's like, you need a way to trust people in cities. Um, as we got the agricultural revolution, it's like religions came around like, hey, what if we had this answer that said that people should be nice to each other else they go to hell? You know, it's like, okay, that's a pretty good answer for that question. And so I think, the, the question of environmental environment design, I think, is really important, and, and minimal viable environment seems important. And I think it is, I guess, when I imagine the output of all of your research and work, or, I mean, this version of it, it's like, yeah, you'll get these things, kind of like that monkey that we looked at earlier, where you're starting to design a bunch of different environments, and you start to see a thing in there. <laughs> that looks kind of AGI-ish or whatever. You know, not, sorry, sorry, sorry. When I, say, <laughs> when I say AGI, I mean there's a there's a whole range of things. You look at something in there and you're like, this is an active agent that is um, 
it's learned to do a bunch that's of things. learned to do a bunch of different things yeah. given its environment exactly. it's able to so, it's like yeah. learned about different types of food that it can interact with and yeah. how to like get the coconut cracked yeah how to get something out of a tube and yes. how to open doors exactly and, you know, a variety of different things and let me yeah. ask you a question about that because i think it's something also that um again kind of from the first in perspective you're kind of from, like we have this big data version of things but we also have this like version of things where we got the robot that does its thing but then if you like chop off like if you if um if you chop if if if, uh, if you have a dog and that dog its leg is trapped under a rock it will eventually like bite off its leg whatever in order to like survive to like go off and like be in the world but if you like had a um uh, the mars rover and i feel like did this happen where the mars rover was like trapped under a rock whatever it had no idea what to do mm-hmm. um so there's this like question of how lots of our ais these days are just like machine learning things are like kind of almost stationary in a sense they're there they're chilling they take in all the data and then boom you get um you know image and good classification things your version of things it has some amount of activeness in it and that's almost what at nine months once you get into the next stage of what babies can do and what chimps can do they can do grasping and they can do all these things mm-hmm. so how do you think about the like active state of like not only should you learn how the world, what's happening with the world, but you should also be able to actively change it in order to like fit your priors or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think maybe the way I would think about this is um, uh, in this dog example that you gave mm-hmm. where the dog was chewing off its own leg, what it was able to do is it was able to modify itself mm-hmm. in order to solve the problem. Mm-hmm. And so it could modify its own limbs to be able to like get rid of its leg. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe this is not what you're pointing at, but uh at the moment, like models don't modify themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Now, in reinforcement learning, which is what we do, um, you know, the model is able to take actions, and so and there's an action space that's mm-hmm. provided to the model. Mm-hmm. In humans, one action that we're able to take is self-modify. We can mm-hmm. change our mind. Mm-hmm. We can. Uh, we can chop off our arm. We can uh, look at a thought and be like, hmm, that's weird. That's not right. Mm-hmm. Um, let's change that thought. Um, so that's those are all available actions. In machine learning systems today, the action space is very limited. Mm-hmm. And so they're not able to self-modify in the same way. They can only really modify based on their inputs, their yeah. training data. And so this is a thing that is missing. Um, one thing that we do at least is we give the agent proprioceptive data. So mm. that's like your own sensory idea of where all your limbs are and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, partly because humans have a proprioception. Um, you know, we have this phenomenon called efference copy where uh, we make an internal copy of all of the signals that go out into our limbs, motor mm. signals. And some, you know, hypotheses, maybe this, this internal copy allows us to um, be able to, like, actually use that those signals so that we can predict what's going to happen in the future. So we do give our agent proprioceptive uh, information. But at the moment, we don't allow it to, like, you know, one action is not modified to the state. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, but one thing that it can do is it can actually... Um, one way in which it can modify itself, which um, existing like non-reinforcement learning systems they don't do, is it can figure out like what to learn more about. Yeah. So it can control its input data yeah. in that way. Yeah. Because that's you know, and that's kind of what I'm pointing at. And mostly I'm just again I'm just pilled into this recent Carl <laughs> Friston thing, and so I just think Carl Friston's awesome. It's so. so good. Oh my god. And so I think it's just like. This idea of like how to balance, you know, epistemic foraging, aka you're an agent in your environment. You want to maximize your own Bayesian model evidence, aka the evidence that you exist in the world. Mm-hmm. And so you're looking at stuff and you 
part of that is like, do, you know, exploiting your current environment where you're eating the bananas there. But part of it is being like, I need to go find out like, where do bananas at? Like how to treat banana trees and all mm-hmm. those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, like, so, so I think, but I think that gets at it, which I, I think, I don't know. There's just a sense in which, um, and then we should transition the sense in which your agents have this kind of, I think it's just powerful to make the agents be in a world because then they get some kind of activeness or in their world, which I think is crucial for um, intelligence. Yeah. Plausibly. Yeah. Maybe, yeah, I, yeah. Plausibly. I think, I think that's possible, quite possible. That's, you know, uh, we, um, there's some of the other pieces of it. Like we, you know, the, the way I describe our problem is we work on uh, self-supervised model-based reinforcement learning, Okay, which means we, um, self-supervised means the environment does not provide the reward signal. Yeah. Um, and I think you can have agents that are active where they get like, you know, play Atari games, but they get the signal directly from the environment, the reward signal directly from the environment. And they get maybe what's called a dense reward. Like they always know, uh, if they're getting closer or farther, or even mm-hmm. if they get a sparse reward from the environment, like that feels very hard coded. It's mm-hmm. hard for this agent to like choose to change its own goals. Mm-hmm. The agent doesn't set its own goals. Yeah. Um, and I think something that we're kind of interested in understanding is like, um, it seems like the agent being able to set its own goals and make trade-offs and make decisions and decide what to do. Um, that seemed necessary for being able to develop intelligence. Yeah. Um, that said, I think like uh, a part of intelligence is developing good representations about the world and how it works. These large models do a very good job. Good. That. They got that unlocked. They, uh, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. so I think you know uh, we can use representations developed by these large models to be able to bootstrap these agents. Um, but yeah, that I, I agree with you in that. Like active stuff. You good. do want to take <laughs> be able to take actions. It yeah. is scarier. Oh god. Oh god. Yeah. yeah <laughs> so yeah, yeah, we have yeah. to be quite careful yes. about that. Yes. But, yes. 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 Um, yes. Yeah. Let's 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 transition to that side of things. Is and I think one side of this is. Let's let's just explore this this weird replicators frame for a second. I just kind of yeah. want to get your your hot take on it, which is yeah, if we have these genes, which are the answers to the environment, and they're the tr- they made the tree of life, and then the memes make the tree of ideas and technology, and they are their own answer to the environment. Um, and and both those things replicate in the sense that genes make these vehicles, aka us, and then we get more of them, and then for long there's all genes all over the world. And similarly, memes are really good at replicating from mind to mind, and now you have all these. You know, we are the vehicles for Christianity or for capitalism or all these things. But the, the thing that I don't know is, like, it feels now we have this new, we have artificial intelligence. And part of, and so I'm not sure if it counts as a third replicator. Um, and maybe, and, and the reason why it might count these, like, keems or something is that you have information that's being so, so one piece is that, uh, I don't know if like the internet itself counts because the internet is just kind of, it's still, it's like sending these bits all around the world. And those bits still live in our brains. They're still in our like homes here. And, and so I like, it feels almost like that's just like a bits version of, of memes, just kind of like how, like the printing press is just, it was still, still need to live in our brains, mm-hmm. but now we have different kinds of things. <clears throat> like back to the concepts idea that we were talking about earlier. It's like that latent, that vector is a thing that simply doesn't fit in our brains, mm-hmm. but is still an evolutionarily found thing that might replicate and might convergently evolve in the environment. So I don't know. What do you think about third replicator stuff? Yeah. Um, okay. There are, there are several ways that we can go with this. Um, maybe we'll go down all the paths. Okay. 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 Ooh, okay. I'm excited. One. Can I actually turn on the light? As sure. You, yeah. As definitely. You, um, 
Let them be late. Alright, okay. Nice. So, um, okay. Several paths we can go down. So, one path kind of like rejects the frame mm-hmm. yeah. uh, from genes and memes, um, like a gene and meme centric frame. Yeah. Um, and one path embraces it. Okay, let's do both. Let's embrace it first. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. So this this idea is from my co-founder, Josh Albrecht, who is mm. extraordinarily brilliant. Yeah, Josh so is I don't, cool. I don't want to take credit for it. Yeah. Um, but it's really interesting. So would you go through a teleporter? Woof. <laughs> I would have to... At, uh, I would have to know that many people were able to go through it and that it was okay. No, it's, and all it's these safe. Things. It's safe. safe. Yeah. Are you sure, though? Because, like, imagine that you step through this teleporter. You know, you get reconstructed on the other Do side. Do I know where I'm Is going? It, you know where you're going. Yeah, okay. yeah. And you get reconstructed yeah. on the other side. Yeah. You're totally safe on the other side. However, what happens to this physical body is uh, it gets shredded through a cheese grater. Oh, Oh yeah, yeah. This is kind of like the um, ship of. Um, it, I don't know. Well, would I do that? Would I do that? Um, I would have to go to therapy before <laughs> uh, and like check in with my sense of self and like all those kind of things. Because like, yeah, I would. I feel sad for the old version of myself that got cheese grated. That's yeah. right. And yeah. so this is a question of like, what is self? Yeah. What am I as a physical being? Yeah. Um, can I actually replicate myself in this way through a teleporter? Mm-hmm. Uh, also, maybe there's another variant where you go through a teleporter, but your current self still remains. Mm. Well, yeah. Ooh, okay. God. That one is weird. less weirder, weirder, weirder. That's super weird. Weirder. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So um, teleporters are weird. Mm-hmm. I would not go through a teleporter mm-hmm. um, because my sense of self is, is this kind of like physical continuity. Yeah. And that kind of makes sense. I'm a physical being. Yeah. Like everything about me is physical. One thing that's really weird about general intelligence, AGIs, is that they are not physical beings. Mm -hmm. They are digital beings. If you said, I'm willing to step through a teleporter um, as a physical being, what you're kind of saying is like, the thing that matters is how information similar the thing on the other side is to me, but I actually don't care about continuity, um, Mm -hmm. which Mm -hmm. is weird as a physical being. Like Mm -hmm. physical beings are like we, you know, it causes all of these weird like the cheese grater problem or mm-hmm. the like, what if your current self didn't get destroyed problem? Mm-hmm. Also like, are you okay with destroying your current self? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's like, that's also weird. Yeah. Um, so the physical, con- the continuity question is important for physical beings. Yeah. And, um, but these digital beings are not the same mm-hmm. for them. They can replicate themselves as many times as they want. Yeah. They can just copy themselves. Yeah continuity actually doesn't make sense as kind of like a sense of self for them. Yeah. For them, information similarity actually does seem like the right thing. It's mm-hmm. like, how similar is this other system to you? Mm-hmm. That's kind of like how related it is to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think one thing, like one path to go down with this replicators idea is I think of digital beings as being different than physical beings. And in fact, like uploading seems quite bad Mm -hmm. in the sense that like you take a physical being and you make it into a digital being, but it has all this like legacy desire for continuity. And that seems bad. Mm -hmm. Um, Similarly, like making a digital being have desire for continuity is Mm -hmm. bad. Mm -hmm. Like, that is just going to introduce all sorts of traumatic, Mm -hmm. (laughs) like really morally weird Uh um, uh, uh, situations. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, Mm. you know, these digital beings are actually like fundamentally different, like classes of thing. Yeah. um, Where us, like what it is or what itself is, is, um, is kind of 
uh, it, the information it contains or the information patterns it contains. Yeah. 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 That's interesting. Cause I think it, it makes me think of like, we developed the notion, the concept of self, because it was a simple explanation to explain our, our physical world, which is like, it seems like there's this body mm. that is me mm. and is doing this thing. And when I do this, it's like, it's me doing that. And it's not you doing that. It's mm -hmm. me. And so we get the self there. Right. And, and uh, there's a really good, uh, an explanation I like from Anil Seth, mm -hmm. who's a, a studies consciousness, is a professor. He said, there's a theory um, that the reason why we develop our sense of self is because we're physical. Uh, if you chop off my arm and I don't know that it's my arm, then I die. Mm -hmm. That's really bad. Mm -hmm. um, so I need to know, like, these are my limbs yeah. uh, and I can't lose them. Yeah. <laughs> it's bad if I lose them. Yeah. And so I kind of develop my sense of self because uh, I'm constantly computing what is part of me, what is not part of me. Because then should I help it? Or, <clears throat> yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. and, and then, but as you said, there's this weird thing. And I, I, I see what you're saying with the digital beings thing, which is that because uh, the way bits work and because you can copy them and duplicate them all around the world all for free, um, <laughs> this idea that there is a self that you'd have this like little set of like, oh, here's like a picture of my grandma. Mm -hmm. And then I copy it and send it over there. It's like, no, there's like, like those two pictures. Did the first one have a sense of self? And now the second one is over here. And it's like, and so I, I think that understanding how these AGIs will develop, if and how they develop. I see what you're saying. Like just, why they, might not... they may not have the same yeah, kind no, of self, totally, right? Totally, like totally, why totally. they don't need to compute what is part of them. Totally, totally. <laughs> well, they might, what they'll want to do, I think, is that there will be aggregations of them, informational aggregations that are able to self-perpetuate and that, um, and that those things, they might be able to just copy themselves and, but there might be like, I don't know, as the, um, I guess like some of the questions here are like, what is the, I don't know, what does the environment look like and how much are they able to copy themselves in theory? They're able to copy themselves infinitely. Mm -hmm. Is this a, so this was, you, you said you were going to go two directions with this. One direction was the like, okay, if we're down to like believing things are replicators thing, mm -hmm. then this is where you went, which is like, Hey, we have, um, they might be totally separate. We might, they might not even be able to think of themselves as an entity that's trying to replicate mm -hmm. because they're this totally separate thing. Because they're not trying to replicate. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally, totally, <laughs> Humans totally. are trying to replicate because we were trying to survive. Mm -hmm. That was our objective function yeah. um, for billions of years. Yeah. But that might not be the, tr this, you know, that might not be true for digital agents. Maybe their like, you know, survival mechanism is you, some other entity replicates the ones that accomplish their goals effectively mm -hmm. in the way that humans want them to accomplish their goals. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's, you know, their kind of quote unquote survival function. Mm -hmm. So then they want to accomplish their goals. Yeah. Um, and you know, that, uh, kind of like, they're not trying to survive at all costs. Mm -hmm. I mean, hopefully we don't create ones that are trying to survive mm -hmm. at all costs. Mm -hmm. That seems really dangerous. Mm -hmm. Nobody do that. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so they're not trying to survive at a cost, so maybe they won't develop the same sense of a self be mm -hmm. a desire for replication. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, you know, if some external thing is replicating ones with certain properties, mm -hmm. they'll end up with those properties. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, thinking about the some kind of external thing doing the replication instead of the thing itself. Do you think, so that was one path you could have gone. What was the other path? The other path was, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So the other path was um, reject the premise that things are replicators. Yes. Yeah, great. And so in this uh, frame. There goes my book. No, <laughs> you ruined my book, can't you? Oh, no. oh my God. I've been working on this thing and now it's ruined. No, no, it's gone. I haven't read the book yet. 
Yeah, so. no, you're fine. No, no, it's not even, it's, it's, it's in process. So, okay. you know, this is helpful feedback. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, okay. So let's imagine we reject the premise that things are replicators. And instead of thinking of genes and memes as replicators, um, we think of why are there genes and why are there memes? Mm-hmm. And, you know, the way I think about that is, okay, why do we have genes? Um, earlier I was mentioning this, uh, something that we do a lot of work on and we're very interested in is network architecture search. Yeah. What um, is that? Yeah. yeah. So it's basically how can you automatically find solutions to the problem setup that you have? Okay. Find your networks that automatically, uh, automatically find your network architectures that can solve your problem. Got it. I'm um, reminded of like lottery <laughs> ticket stuff where you can get the lottery ticket and why can't, can't we get faster at finding the lottery ticket? <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. So like finding a lottery ticket network. That's kind of like in the same realm. Even, you know, honestly, like training a giant transformer mm. is kind of a type of architecture search. You, yeah. know, you end up changing the architecture mm. to have different um, different weights. Uh, but, uh, you know, this idea of architecture searches, uh, you know, maybe you can automatically find um, somewhat different architectures that can solve your problem easily. Mm-hmm. Um, and... So you can think about, so when we're, when we think about architecture search, you know, one problem we run into is architectures are so complex to describe. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, if you had to specify the space of all possible architectures, mm-hmm. how would you like evolve that space? That's such a huge search space. Mm-hmm. Same is true with like human biology. Mm-hmm. Our biology is so complex. If you had to specify every single cell, that's such a huge search space. Mm-hmm. You can't do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so genes are basically a genotype that produces a phenotype. And the search can happen through the genotype. Mm-hmm. And so for architecture search, you know, potentially one, one plausible way that you might want to do it is to have a genotype that you can search through. That's a smaller search space. And then uh, that produces different phenotypes mm-hmm. of architectures. And um, if I think about, like, what mm-hmm. is the role of genes? Why do we have DNA? Um, I think we have DNA because it's much more, and I think this is also Josh's idea. So I just want to give him credit for this. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We're all, we're, yeah, we every, talk all the time. Exactly. So, exactly, exactly. Um, who knows? Who, yeah, yeah. who knows? But, yeah. um, but I, yeah, I think this is also Josh's idea. So, um, you should definitely read his work. Um, yeah. so, so you know, apply to work at, or apply uh, to work yeah, at generally, generally intelligent, intelligent um, AI maybe. Yeah. yeah okay. So, so. Why do we have genes? Well, genes provide a much smaller search space for evolution. So mm-hmm. you can easily uh, perturb, mutate different yep. genes, which we see happen all the time. And that mutation allows us to um, end up with all sorts of combinations of phenotypes, some which survive, some which should die. Mm-hmm. And so genes allow evolution to do architecture search. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. why genes exist. Yeah. So that's like one way to think about why genes exist. Now, it also has this interesting phenomenon of replicating certain genes because those are the ones that were fit mm-hmm. and those are the ones that survive. Mm-hmm. But that's not why mm-hmm. genes exist. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, that's so that's kind of like rejecting the premise. Okay, yeah. I'm going to reject the premise again for yeah. memes. Sorry, you uh, uh, Reject the present premise for memes. Yeah, yeah. So what I'm, what I'm hearing is, that, yeah, it's not like the genes didn't show up in order to, um, to replicate. Yeah, they showed up in order to... Uh, be a smaller, do the genotype search instead of the phenotype search for this, because uh, it's hard to do the phenotype search for these larger, more complex spaces. And so mm-hmm. you just keep it to a smaller um, uh, space. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. And then for memes, yeah, reject the premise for memes. Yeah, reject the premise mm-hmm. for memes. Yeah. Um, so the uh, question is, why do we have memes? Mm-hmm. Like, why do we believe spread through the population? Mm-hmm. You could imagine that we have some alien species that doesn't have memes at all. Mm-hmm. Um, 
because they don't copy each other. Mm-hmm. They don't take beliefs from each other. They mm-hmm. derive everything from first principles. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. That's possible. Yep. Um, so there's actually a really interesting book called Darwin's Unfinished Symphony. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Leyland, uh, guy's first name. And um, one you know, thesis that he proposes in this book is um, they ran some competition. I have not read any of these papers, mm-hmm. so I, I'm not sure exactly. I'm like still in the middle of this book. Yep. Um, they ran some competition um, to try to understand like, uh, I think why copying behavior develops or mm-hmm. something like this. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, what they concluded was um, copying is very efficient. Uh, the reason it's efficient is because other animals' behaviors serve as a filter on all possible behaviors. Mm-hmm. If you had to do all possible behaviors, then it's very inefficient. You have to search mm-hmm. through behavior space yourself. Mm-hmm. Instead, you could copy other animal behaviors and that now a lot like reduces your potential search space. Yeah. So again, memes are a search space reduction mechanism yeah. um, that makes you efficiently uh, like take behaviors that allow you to survive. Yeah. And so it's actually, um, I think he ran some, there's some mathematical model he ran maybe um, that discovered that like, like most species tend or like most organisms tend toward copying. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, and it's interesting. You do see copying everywhere. In bees, in mice, mm-hmm. in uh, birds, in primates, mm-hmm. in like name an animal, they mm-hmm. copy. Mm-hmm. Um, they copy behaviors from other animals. Mm-hmm. So memes, you know, what are memes? Oh, it's us copying uh, other people's uh, beliefs. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. I think that there's, and I think yeah, there's a similar version of that for genes too, which is that yeah, a gene like if you were a, um, it's like. If you are trying to balance, explore, exploit, you know, you're, what you do is you're just like, oh man, let's just keep whatever worked last time. Like that organism seemed to be fine. Let's just roll it back. You know, mm-hmm. let's just do the same thing and copy it. And similarly, yeah, if you're trying to find uh, in mimetic space and you're like, what those people are doing is probably fine. It's let's probably just fine. do the same thing. That's they right. seem and to the, exist. The you know? unfit ones, yeah. the unfit means will die out. Yeah, similarly, yeah. the unfit genes will die out. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so I think. So I think we can uh, transition to the final bit of this, but I, I hear what you're saying here, which is that to think about, um, I guess like on the memes, on the gene side, it's like, okay, think about the genotype versus phenotype and like how to just like the states or the, the search bases and whether or not replication is necessarily this like, um, necessary convergently evolved thing or whether there is some kind of, it would just evolve for this other reason. And then it's like, it just happened to. I don't know, but that's because then you will see stuff. I think you almost, I think you have to get replication within these systems because the things that persist are the things that, that want to access energy and want to replicate. Yeah. So, you know, here, maybe here's what I would, maybe yeah. he, here's how I'd frame it. Yeah. Framing it as these are the things that want to replicate yeah. gives the thing itself a lot of agency. Yeah, 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 classic. And so it's a framing around the gene mm-hmm. taking actions in order to replicate itself, which yeah. it doesn't. Yeah, yeah. Whereas I think my reject the premise frame yeah. is um, I'm looking at what behavior the system is causing. Mm-hmm. So the frame is from the system as opposed mm-hmm. to from the gene. Mm-hmm. And um, you're good (laughs) so in the replicator framing you're yeah Yeah, you you can have (laughs) drink some water yes (laughs) and as you do that okay inhale some dust yeah yeah yeah, you're good um (laughs) 
Okay, great. Okay, sweet. Okay. Okay. Okay, let me try that again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so um basically the reject the premise is in the replicator frame, you're looking from the perspective of the gene or the meme yeah. and you're saying this thing wants to replicate, but it doesn't want to. It instead what I'm saying is if you look from the perspective of the overall system, what the system has done is set up a system such that particular things do replicate. Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. and so it's not like the ones that quote unquote want to replicate are the ones that replicate. No, instead the ones that are fit according to the standards of the system are the mm-hmm. ones that end up getting replicated. Mm-hmm. If the system changes, different things will get replicated. So mm-hmm. different means will get replicated in a different system. Mm-hmm. Um, similarly, different genes get replicated in different ecosystems mm-hmm. that select for different things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I think I, I, it's like from the perspective of the environment or the system, you're looking down you're like, okay, mm-hmm. what's going to, what can survive here? Mm-hmm. And, um, and you, and as you said, there are, you could imagine certain versions of things where, where replication doesn't emerge there, where it's like, I just think the, my main takeaway here is that like, I think seeing the world from the frame of the replicators is good, but also a thing that humans don't often do is like zooming way out and seeing the frame from the perspective of like the environment. You know, like, right. you know it's like, as long as you do I, both I those think, things. I think maybe what I'm saying is there is no frame from the perspective of the replicators. Uh-huh. Like replicators mm-hmm. don't have a desire to replicate. Mm-hmm. There's, there's no such thing as a desire. Yeah, yeah. Instead, you look from the frame of the environment and you're like, okay, there's this phenomenon of replication. Yeah. And there are these attributes that cause this phenomenon of replication. Yes. And this phenomenon is true. It does it does occur. Yes. And it's possible. Maybe in all systems there is a replication phenomenon of some mm-hmm. sort. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. No, I like that. I think it's and it's a classic like, <laughs> you know, in, in Doc and Selfish Gene where he's like, Yeah, I'm saying they want to replicate, but really it's just saying the things that eventually only exist are the ones that have this uh that um were able to capture energy from the environment or whatever and perpetuate. And so that that's kind of like the <laughs> systems view. Mm-hmm. Um okay, so let's let's start to get to rap mode. And I think that, well, let me just, yeah, let me think if there's any, so yeah, y'all are building this. Well, before we go into yes, rap mode, yes, I want to yes. ask you, like, is yeah. that what you, was this what you were hoping for? Just, was this interesting or, oh, yeah. was, or, sorry, maybe a different question is, what are your objections to this? Oh, um, to that framing? This, this, yeah, this, oh, um, this, the systems framing, systems oh, framing, I think, and also the digital being framing. Yeah. Okay. I can answer both those. Um, the, and thank you for uh, having me respond. I think the, um, Digital beings framing, yeah, oof, that one's interesting, and I think that that gets at um, there's something really weird about, yeah, I think I think so. My, a couple of responses: a, it's like this, like Markov blankets version thing, which mm-hmm. is like this Friston thing that says Markov blankets are what defines a thing from its environment, and so well, that's interesting. Yeah, it's like a statistical <laughs> representation that is yeah, used to do that. Well, yeah, it's actually Markov blanket is like a, um, in a graph. Uh, in like a connected graph, um, it it basically says like condition on these nodes, these other nodes are independent from each other. Yeah, and yeah. so yeah, I can see how it, it's kind of like a separation. Um, yeah, the independent from each other. Kind independent of thing. from each other, but it's, uh, then you would have to model the world and people as graphs? Question mark. I guess you could. I think you. Well, yeah, 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 yeah. So, and, and, and I think. Yeah, so, so so that frame, and, and whether we use the um, mathematical formalism of Markov blankets, this idea that things desire, quote-unquote, um, that replicators, if we keep the replicators desire framing, um, or you could do the systems view, which is that things will develop containers mm. um, and, and lipid layers oh. at the early... Um, uh, with early life or, you know, with us having our bodies, with our skin on the outside, and also with memes and having these kind of like 
there is our people. We are the Republicans versus the Democrats or whatever. Mm -hmm. It's like, this is like, you know, like the tendency towards groups mm -hmm. um, and towards containers is mm -hmm. a thing that occurs. That's interesting. Um, yeah, I think it's kind of, yeah, and so I think that the, what you said is like, hey, we might have these things that don't containerize, um, you know, which is that you have this thing that has no sense of self, you know, that has, it is just, it's here and the same JPEG is over there. The same kind of model is over there. Mm -hmm. And so can it really have a sense of self given that these other things are just copies of it that are mm -hmm. infinite to, um, that are infinitely cheap to produce and replicate. Mm -hmm. And so I think, uh, yeah, that's a kind of a square peg round hole thing where it's like, I do think that there's this truth of, um, containerization or Markov blankets convergently evolving. Mm -hmm. And I think that, um, you have the truth of how computers work and how bits work <laughs> and that, that in transistors, um, and that you'll have these things where their natural kind of Markov blankets around themselves will not necessarily be traditional, but might be, but, but I do think, and I think that the containers show up when you're fighting for resources, like you were talking about with your hand, when your hand gets chopped off. Um, the reason why I need to know it's my hand and not yours is because like, I need it in order to survive and all these things. Like I should put food in my mouth, not in your mouth. You know? That's um, interesting. So you have arise yeah. when you're fighting for resources. Huh. So I think that the, and this is the question of like, when you have these, you can imagine and kind of, you can imagine this already happening where it's like all these, there's a, there's a state space or a kind of a um, design space of different, um, AIs that are looking for Google compute resources. Mm -hmm. Um, and the ones that are succeeding are the Starcraft one and the AlphaFold one and, you know, the, um, the chess one. And so I think maybe that's, and so they do containerize in their own way. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah maybe a question to ask is like, um, yeah, it seems, certainly seems like, um, maybe this containerization phenomenon would happen with neural networks. Yeah. Um, so the question might be like, what resources might it fight over such that it ends up, uh, like grouping, uh, like groups end up forming. And so what, what groups might form as a result of those resources that is fighting over that? Yeah, exactly. Compute is interesting. I think, I mean, cause what are they fighting for? You know, it's like, yeah, more, um, more compute equals more performance. Yeah. <laughs> so I could see that. Like if you only replicate the ones that are performing well, um, then they would want more compute in order to have better performance. Mm -hmm. And there's kind of a natural, there's a weird, like, you know, human them coevolution here where it's like right now their main space that their their main competitive landscape, fitness landscape is based off of what we want as well. And so it's like some of what they're fighting for too is like the space of like, there's only, if you think about the space of all possible, like domestic robots, mm -hmm. um, there are going to be ones that do the, um, Roombas, you mm -hmm. know? And so there's going to be a, a battle mm -hmm. for Roomba-ness. And, um, for cleaning, uh, and they will, and there's going to be lots of cute little Roombas, but in the end, they're going to have containers around themselves. Cause like this Roomba wants to beat this other Roomba because it wants to be the one that actually cleans your freaking room, um, or else it doesn't exist anymore. So I don't know, but I don't know how that totally translates into the world of pure bits. So, cause it's easier with atoms talking about atoms like that. So yeah, I don't know about the bits. It's interesting. Yeah. I mean, so thinking from the systems perspective, it's like, if you have a system that replicates, like where humans replicate the ones that the AGIs that achieve their goals, um, achieve the human's goals yeah. more effectively, then that might select for uh, AGIs that use more compute or like use compute more efficiently. Mm -hmm. And so you end up replicating AGIs that use compute efficiently or use much more compute or something like that. Yeah. It's interesting. In theory, hopefully compute aligned with human values or whatever. But yeah, there's, there's a, yeah. 
And so that's my rough response to your first one. But I think it's interesting. It's like the sense of self with these things and where containers show up. Mm. The, on your uh, other one, which is the pushback on which lens you're kind of viewing it from, mm-hmm. I'm reminded of um, there's Neil Stevenson, but then there's also the other guy, Kim Stanley Robinson. Mm-hmm. Kim Stanley Robinson's recent book, which I'm going to forget the name of, um, is... Uh, it, it tells the world from the perspective of lots of different lenses, from the um, perspective of a photon, perspective of uh, a carbon factory, whatever, all these things. And um, yeah, and so I think that thinking, what would I say here? I think that there's some kind of... <laughs> yeah, I mean, I do think that... So I agree with you to say that there are the main... One of the main things is that we have environments that then provide puzzles that need to be solved. And um, that's even before genes and memes, you had like um, the environment, AKA the laws of physics provided a puzzle, which was um, what can exist in orbits um, based off of, we have gravity, we got the strong nuclear force and we have like electromagnetism. And then we get boom, like stars exist and other orbiting things exist like planets and stuff, these like blobs and then orbits. Mm. And, um, and so I think that there's a, so then thinking about like, um, so I think that this, the thinking about what the system or what the environment, like the puzzles that's giving, I think is really important. And, um, and I, in some ways I agree with you to say that the puzzles are, um, upstream of the desire for replication. Like replication is just a good trick in the design space of, Hey, you have these puzzles coming from above. Oh, damn. I want a puzzle good. Like you were saying, it's like, I should probably just replicate what they're doing or replicate like the gene should just replicate itself instead of trying to make a whole new body each time. It's like, just do the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's a lot of truth there. And I also think that there is a, again, these fighting over resources and some mm-hmm. kind of fitness landscape. It's like you have, if you have some kind of religion and there was this religion, the um, spinners mm-hmm. that didn't, they didn't missionary. They were all celibate and they died out within like 25 years. And so, yeah. So, <laughs> I think that upstreamness is important and the puzzles that are um, doing is important. I think that replication is a good fit for the kind of puzzles that are produced. And I think that there's a fighting over resources where the things that succeed are the most, um, are the things that get best access to those resources. And yeah. That's interesting. What hmm. do you think about that? That's interesting. It's kind of like what you're saying is um, uh, the, the phenomenon of replication has properties that make replication happen or something mm-hmm. or like uh like you know religions that don't have these replication properties die out yeah. whereas religions with great viral factor don't die out yeah uh, or like religions like i think the mormons have a crm yes <laughs> oh, oh yeah the mormons have a crm <laughs> oh right. sorry i said hell yeah i'm in heck yeah oh. <laughs> they invented the crm <laughs> oh, is what i've heard oh, they invented the CRM? <laughs> yeah like before oh. salespeople use them that's amazing and then okay this is just a story which yeah. is and then they hired enterprise salespeople who were mormons because they're really effective at yeah. uh uh, convincing people. Yes. And they've done a great job. And they've done a great job. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I could be wrong. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, so, you know, the things replicate. So I guess the, I think that replication is a kind of a desire for replication is an emergent behavior mm-hmm. based off of these puzzles that the environment sends. So I, I agree with your perspective, which is to think from the environmental lens. Mm-hmm. It's like, and like certain replicate, like certain properties make replication more effective. Mm. Is that what, is that what you're saying? What I'm saying is that in order to, um, I guess what I'm saying is that, like, in order to things that solve puzzles, the the environment gives a puzzle. How can I um, get light 
from, or how can I do photosynthesis with the sun? Oh, I'm going to develop photosynthesis and now I can like, get energy from the sun. Those pulses that are provided, uh, uh, the things that solve them, um, and you could just have like a one-off solving thing, mm. but if something actually exists, has this, you know, existential uh, imperative, it needs to, um, it needs to both solve the problem and repeatedly solve the problem in order for us to point at it and say that thing exists. Mm. I think maybe I would. That's interesting. Maybe my environmental, my environmental, my, uh, my environmental framing, yeah. maybe would be a little bit different, which is that. By definition, solving the problem causes the replication. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. for example, uh, animals that are able to, like humans, we're very good at replicating. Mm-hmm. Um, and we are in an environment where the problem to solve is like food and survival. Or yeah. like, you know, survival, which breaks down into food and other, like, don't get hunted. And yeah, don't yeah, die. Yeah, yeah. Um, food, have yeah. sex, don't get hunted. You know, <laughs> that's like, right. It's simple. You know? Have sex and don't get hunted. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's how you survive. Yeah. Um, and... I guess, okay, so um, in your point about photosynthesis, everything that didn't figure out photosynthesis was not able to, like, use this extra resource. And so it, that those things then died out. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, maybe they're just not using this resource. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we don't see any of those things because they, don't, they didn't solve this problem of using this resource. Mm-hmm. And... and- Mm-hmm. And that if you had a one-off thing, you could imagine something that wasn't doing replication mm-hmm. that solved the problem. That was like, I developed photosynthesis. Mm-hmm. Isn't this sweet? Uh, and um, if it didn't replicate, then it wouldn't matter. Then we just, if like you did it, you technically solved the problem in the environment, mm-hmm. but we don't point at you and say you I exist. Because, so there's yeah. still a replication component to it. It's like everything that does survive has to actually try to replicate. Yeah. Yeah. In order for us to point at something and say it's an object, it just needs to like... It, yeah, it, yeah. The weird thing is, though, it feels like genes and memes don't have this property where they're trying to replicate. Mm-hmm. Like both genes and memes, mm-hmm. they end up replicating because of the selection, of, like because of the like uh, the system selection effects. Mm-hmm. Whereas organisms do try to replicate; they mm-hmm. like do things in order to replicate. And so it feels like they're separate in this way. Like a plant does replicate. If it doesn't try to replicate, it dies out. Mm-hmm. But genes can't try to replicate as mm-hmm. far as we can tell. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, I think this is part of this is just like a framing question. I think what I would say is that the, um, yeah, it's kind of awkward. It's like, so yeah, I think that from a plant, the plant is the thing that is uh, spread in its seed, and then you get more little plants. And, and that's that like feed. a clear replication action. Yeah. Like humans have sex, and then yes. more humans are produced. Yes. It's a clear replication yes, action. Yes, 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 So in the gene and mean example, like... Well, so the gene, I think that what what the claim would say, and this is mostly a Dawkins kind of claim, is just like, the plant is just a vehicle for the genes. And that the plant, it, does, it's, it is doing all these actions in the world to make the seeds and stuff. But in the end, there's some... The, like, if you think about all the genes that exist within the plant, some of those genes in there say replicate. They mm-hmm. say, again, I'm not really a biologist, but they say, um, spread your seed, you mm-hmm. know? And I think that the, and the ones that didn't say that mm-hmm. in the pre-plant taste, they went away. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, the plant has this phenotype of quote-unquote replication, mm-hmm. but in fact, that I phenotype is coded, coded by the genotype. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. 
So then what that would mean is that any genes that don't like specify the replication behavior of the plant then would be able to die out. So yes. the like non-replication genes would die out. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And I would say one other thing here, which is, so you see this as, well, A, you see like intense selfish gene action where there's this, um, I wish I could remember the name, but it's essentially a gene that copies itself within genomes and it's, or it's, it, within human genomes, it's like 13% of our genome. It's just like one thing that's just really good at copying itself. It has no other, it does nothing else. Um, and so it's kind of just like exploiting the rest of our thing, just like really good at replicating. Um, so that's kind of an example of like a weird sub example of this. I think that the, I was going to say one piece here, which was that um, the genes are replicating. They have this desire. The genotype has this thing. Um, and the plants... Uh, oh, yeah, the, the genes. Yeah, what I would say is that the, um, there has, you can even see this at like a deep down, like uh, biological level, which is that, and this gets into like von Neumann replicators and stuff like that, but like that there's a, you have to have, you know, we do, t we do DNA transcription where we look at it, we read the thing and we get all these, we get our mRNA, our messenger RNA, and that is a copy of the DNA. So we, we have this copying thing, the cop, like that replication is really crucial. And then we do the building piece where we then do the, um, so we do the, the transcription, then we do the translation, which is push it through the ribosome, the, the 3D printer and have it print out new proteins. Mm -hmm. And so I do think that I would be, I'm not sure you might be able to find alien species that don't have some kind of copying mechanism or like some kind of like copying the source code and then like per reproducing the source code. Mm -hmm. Like you got to make the machine and you got to put new copies of the machine into itself. That um, might just be a physical thing though. Like if I think about computers, um, I guess if I had some code that specified some phenotype, like some architecture, um, do I need to copy the code in order to produce the architecture? Not necessarily. I guess like, I guess like computers are copying things all the time, but then they're only stored temporarily and then they get discarded and the, so the copies get discarded and then the, like the genotype gets produced. Mm -hmm. So like we would copy segments of this code, pass it through some function to produce the architecture. Now the architecture is what we wanted and we're going to turn the network and then we go back in and modify this code and then like try a different architecture and pass it through this function. Mm -hmm. So I guess in that sense, it's kind of like the deep 3d printer, but like a lot of the copies are discarded. Yeah. And there's a weird thing too, with like the, the copies and where the, like, and like the von Neumann thing is like, you have to make the machine and you have to put the, um, if you want to make a replicator, you have to make, it has to contain both the instructions for making a new machine and the, you have to be able to produce it and you have to be able to put the copy of the like instructions into the new thing. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, I think it's weird with computers. It's like, we kind of have like the new machine creation is kind of like, well, we already got all these computers around, so you don't really need to make a new machine. You just kind of copy the code and send it to your grandma and like she receives your JPEG or whatever. So I'm not sure. Um, mm. so yes, I think, I think we should, we should, I think we should get into rapish mode. Okay. Um, the, uh, <laughs> the, uh, but this will be an ongoing conversation. And I think maybe as a final, let me just double check my little notes here. Um, let's do, let's, let's finish up with a couple of fun things. First, you're making this, do you want to talk about the neighborhood at all? 
No. Okay, great. So. Okay, great. It, um, I don't really identify as a community builder. Okay, that's <laughs> interesting. I called you a community builder, but I see you as a community builder, but maybe not. Who that's knows? That's really interesting. Um, yeah. The uh, Come to San Francisco is a TLDR there. Um, the, that's right. Okay, we can briefly talk about it. We no, can no, no, talk we about don't. the neighborhood and science philosophy. No, 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 okay. no we're okay. good, we're good. Um, okay. Check out canjune.me to see these other cool things that Canjun is doing. That's right, um, canjune.me. Yeah, uh, and then the other, let's do, let's do a tiny little, let me, let me ask one question for you, which is what was the thing that we're going to do, we're going to do a little bit of overrated, underrated, and a little bit, some more of the question. The first, yeah, the first one is what do you think about, there's this great Dan Gross, Daniel Gross quote about how the people that are doing cool things in the world are, and not to say that people aren't, but whatever, the, um, they had this like little feedback loop set off inside them where they like, like whoa, I have agency and I can be curious and I can learn. And I can go and be excited about it and go do things. Mm -hmm. When in your life did that little thing get catalyzed? Oh, wow. Um, I think it happened multiple times. Um, I I think magnet programs are really important. And it's really oh. sad that people are destroying them. Yeah. Um, I was... Uh, went into a magnet program when I was in fourth grade. They like picked some people from the district and put them in a room together. And in fourth grade was when I realized like, oh, wow, like there's a different way to school mm -hmm. um, where I'm not just doing what the teacher says, but like I can be curious and understand things and work through all of the books uh, much faster and not be held back. And um, I just felt like this incredible sense of freedom um, because of this magnet program. And I think really that speaks to like putting more trust in kids yeah. and kids' curiosity. Um, yeah. The second one was actually CIFAR, Center for mm -hmm. Applied Rationality. Cool. I went to a CIFAR workshop in 2014. And I think CIFAR has this like incredible way of injecting agency into people. Mm -hmm. And in particular, like helping you realize all your problems in your life are solvable. Mm -hmm. You can solve all of them. Every mm -hmm. single one, no matter how hard you think it is, like is solvable. And um, after I realized that I was like, Oh, all my problems are solvable. I'm just going to solve all my problems. Um, so I solved them, <laughs> like, you know, that was, yeah, those are two agency inducing experiences. And then the third one, I would say, um, neither of those two were feedback loops. Mm -hmm. They yeah. were kind of like single moments in time. Yeah. The archive, which was this, uh, house in San Francisco, um, that was a crazy agency feedback loop yeah. where like I, um, the, you know, the initial impetus for it was, um, we felt like in college is where people make most of their friends. And my friend Aram, um, he found a military study where they discovered, they inspected what led to the closest relationships. And they discovered that there are three things. One is, uh, shared experiences. One is, um, feeling like you can let your guard down. Mm -hmm. And the last one is spontaneous interactions. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so we started this just to like be able to, you know, pull people who we wanted to become good friends with. Yeah. Um, but it ended up uh, becoming this really interesting, um, I think my other housemate Jason called it a self-actualization machine. Mm -hmm. Someone entered the archive and then like two years later feel like self-actualized, um, yeah. like be incredibly different and incredibly self-actualized. And there were a ton of feedback loops that we had, like people always thinking about how to change and solve problems and improve themselves and, um, you know, to the point of copying yeah. the like norms and the environment around you. I think I, yeah, that was like a, that was a crazy agency feedback loop. That's amazing. Like, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be doing any of the things I'm doing now. 
Totally. Yeah. Yeah. It makes me think it's like, yeah, agency begets agency. You like see the other people doing something. Okay. We can do stuff. Yeah. You're like, I can do that too. Wow. Why didn't I think of uh, making a list of reflection prompts? Uh The most recent thing that I adopted from one of my friends. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Um, Cool. And then the other thing that I want to do is um, overrated, underrated. And so the, um, so (laughs) these are kind of general, but um, let's start at the general level. Um, AI. Is AI overrated or underrated? I don't like these um, <laughs> because it's so nuanced. Yeah, too so bad. So what is AI? <laughs> uh, AI in general, I think a lot of things are like we've made more progress in the last five years than yeah. we've made in the last 60. Yeah. Um, this field is crazy. It's growing exponentially. The number of good papers is growing exponentially. It's just like crazy. Everything is crazy. Um, so I don't think it's overrated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It may be underrated. I think general yeah. intelligence might happen sooner than most people think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I saw a lot of people update on their like, hey, heads up that my my update towards AGI has actually moved up to two by two years because <laughs> of Dolly and all these. And it's like, oh boy. Um, right. And there's a lot more where that came from. Yeah. You know, you only see the outside, uh, the external outputs of what's happening. Um, but I think you know, when talking to everyone people on the ground, all the human capital, all the, it's like, wow, it's going to be amazing. Uh, okay. Specifically transformers because it, it are transformers within AI. Um, I read this thing from Andre from Calparty or whatever from uh, Tesla. Who's like, Oh, everybody's just um, converging on transformers as the main architecture. Are they overrated or underrated? Um, I think they're underrated in certain ways and overrated in other ways. Mm. So I think transformers are a really incredible, very general architecture. Um, and basically like uh, the transformer doesn't have its, doesn't have as many maybe biases or restrictions as other architectures. And um, it is able to learn these kind of like uh, correlations between things. And it kind of like learns a more, it's like more general. Um, And so you can give it a lot of data and it can adopt the shape of whatever data you give it. And it's really powerful. Um, They are maybe overrated in the sense that I think a lot of people think that just scaling up transformers will get you to general intelligence. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And just the computation that's happening in the transformer is missing a bunch of things required for general intelligence. Mm-hmm. That seems definitely uh, overrated. Great. Got it. Yeah. Um, and the final question is uh, San Francisco. I mean, there was this time I moved here two years ago and then it was like, and obviously COVID happened. And everybody was like, screw San Francisco. Um, and uh, people moved away. And now people move back. What do you think it is overrated or underrated? <laughs> I think San Francisco is underrated. Underrated. Yeah, still underrated. Always, uh, you know, might be for a while. Um, we're starting this neighborhood in San Francisco. And uh, it's, yeah, I think what's amazing about San Francisco is that it's a shell, this like shelling point. And it's just going to become more of a shelling point with the neighborhood. Um, you know, people have moved back from New York for it. Um, I think ultimately like, you know, back to feedback loops. Um, and I saw you had a question about what advice I'd have for young people, yeah. uh, which is, I think like, I really become the people around me and, and, mm. um, it's, you know, we talked about copying behavior, like copying is really efficient. Yeah. And so if you want to grow really fast, like copying is the most efficient way to grow in some situations. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously you want to derive some things from first principles, but, um, so San Francisco is underrated in the sense that it it's like the only place I've ever seen with this incredibly optimistic view of what people can create in the future and what the future can be and our ability to shape that. And um, there are tons of people who have like incredible amounts of agency doing a lot of different things. Um, I think it, it has its own problems, yeah. um, both at, at the city governance level, but, you know, it's a very young city. So yeah. I think we'll figure that out. Um 
but also uh, the you know at a cultural level, like maybe we could value intellectual depth mm-hmm. instead of hot takes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> more <laughs> long like podcasts. Yeah. More <laughs> long podcasts. That's right. That's right. <laughs> beautiful. Well, that I agree, and I do think there's a beautiful um, being aware of who you're around, the copying behavior, and the shelling point of San Francisco is great. There is this amazing sense of agency here, which is really back to your first question. It's like you know, being in the archive um, was is a great place to get agency and so if you want agency and you can get it on the internet which is amazing mm-hmm. and you can get it everywhere but um here's a great place that's um, right beautiful so with that um thank you so much for coming on the show um is there a place a thing that you would recommend i mean what i'd recommend to the listeners is yeah and you can check out a you can check out kanjun.me um and there is great stuff there around this cool science plus plus project and how meta science stuff. And then there's the neighborhood, which is this cool, like um, community experiment that's happening. And then also Kanjun is an angel investor. So if you want cash money, hit her up. Um, it just, I mean, you know, um, and then um, you can also go to generally intelligent.ai. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, I think there's some cool stuff there. And Kanjun has a podcast. And so if you want to go deeper on the like machine learning side of things, like go there. And if we you interview to... researchers about their work. Yeah, uh, exactly. And we... talk about the technical details of it. Exactly. So researchers, technical stuff, but then honestly at the, um, I kind of, and Kanjun said not to, you know, talk about this today, but the blog posts, I, I've read some of the blog posts before. They were kind of helpful for a noob like me where it's like, okay, here is how this, um, variational encoder works. And it just, you guys have a pretty good, it's like clear explanation. So mm-hmm. I don't know. I found that mm-hmm. to be nice. You can also check out, they're obviously hiring for, I mean, uh, developers and non-developers. And systems engineers and yeah. machine learning research engineers. Okay. Those yeah. people. Yeah. Um, so anything else that you would like to say to our listeners, Kanjun? Um, no, follow, her on Twitter, you can I guess. follow me on Twitter. Uh, yeah. Or DM me on Twitter. If you want to talk about this stuff, you know, I think, um, I think a lot about how the mind works also. Uh, so that's something we didn't cover. Um, but yeah, we can talk about that. Hit her up. Um, it's, and, uh, if you want more agency, hit her up and say, how can it be more agentful? <laughs> and she'll say, Woo-hoo, thank you. Welcome. Well, I do like <laughs> helping young people. So yeah. if you're a young person, um, yeah, feel free to DM me. Yeah. Beautiful. Um, thank you so much, Kendra. And goodbye, thank everybody. Bye. Peace, peace, peace. Thanks so much for listening today. If you like the show, please give us a five-star podcast review or subscribe on YouTube. And if you'd like to chat about this episode with a community of amazing, smart, ambitious, divergent people, come on by and join our Discord. You can find it at root.co. That's R-O-O-T-E dot co. And then finally, if you'd like to contribute to these ideas being shared more widely in society, you can support the podcast production team at patreon.com slash Lindmark. That's patreon.com slash R-H-Y-S-L-I-N-D-M-A-R-K. Thank you so much.